It's the Airhead 247 Podcast. The Airhead 247 Podcast, powered by Wedgetail Ignition Systems, state of the art ignition for your 247 Airhead. Proudly made in Australia by motorcyclists who love their BMWs. By the BMW Motorcycle Owners of America, who invite you to ride inspired. And Boxer2Valve.com, the premium supplier for all your airhead replacement parts. Now, let's get this thing fired up. Hi again, everyone. This week, a return visit, command performance, if you will, from Brooke Reams. You'll recall from an earlier chat with Brooke, he's a lifelong airhead rider and enthusiast who's documented a number of builds and restorations with great detail and information for the benefit of all 247 enthusiasts. A side note, William Plam from Boxer 2 Valve off this week, but he will be back next time for another informative Tech Talk segment. All right, so this interview was just conducted on June 28th, 2023, as Brooke is preparing to auction off an R80 ST for the Motorcycle Relief Project. We wanted to get this episode up and out quickly to assist with promoting the auction of this bike, which I'm confident to say is a top-shelf job. Brooke, as usual, has documented this restoration on his YouTube channel and webpage. So the easiest way to get some visuals on all this, just type in Brooke Reams, B-R-O-O-K, Reams, R-E-A-M-S, in your browser. Both those webpages will be at the top of the search results. Also, you can learn more about the Motorcycle Relief Project at motorelief.org. It's a wonderful program that serves veterans and first responders. We'll learn more about that in our chat with Brooke here in just a moment. Thanks to everyone who's been writing with their survivor bike stories. Keep those coming. These will be featured in upcoming issues of the BMW MOA Owner's News and in a longer, more detailed format in our soon-to-be-published website. There'll be more about the website in the coming weeks. We'll have some fun and, I hope, useful content to share on the webpage, so stay tuned for more information on that. It is coming soon. Remember, you can email us directly, airheads247 at hotmail.com. Drop a line anytime with whatever's on your mind. Finally, thanks to everyone in Sydney, Australia, Council Bluffs, Iowa, and Chicago, Illinois. You are the top three plays for our podcast in the month of June. All right, off we go with Brooke Reams and his R80ST Motorcycle Relief Project Restoration on the Airhead 247 Podcast. We're on the line once again with Brooke Reams out in Colorado, and this time an interesting topic on an interesting bike for a great Great cause. Uh, Brooke, we're talking about the R80 ST charity build, I guess, we're, I guess we'll call it. So let's start off by saying, or asking rather, the charity uh, you've built this R80 ST to auction for. Tell me about that right off the bat. Yeah, there's a local organization here 
called the Motorcycle Relief Project, and they uh, have a program of therapy for military and first responders who are suffering from PTSD. And I ran across them a while back. Um, They are using BMW motorcycles, and the way their program works is they orchestrate a week-long ride uh, out in the mountains, uh, often on dirt roads and things, and they hold therapy sessions in the evening at the end of the day. And their goal is to help people who are in serious distress uh, to be able to open up about what it is that's eating them alive and share that with people who are equally at distress. The success rate on that program is enormous. They've had about 500 people go through, and I don't think they've ever failed to help a single individual gain control of their life again and not let the stress of serious things that happen when you're in an armed conflict control their lives anymore. So I've been very, very impressed with their success rate. Wow. That's great. Of course, I don't think either of us have much of a therapy background here, so I don't want to sound like I'm speaking out of turn. That being said, uh, there is something therapeutic about riding a motorcycle. Uh, Having uh, that time with the machine, uh, having some time, what I call helmet thoughts, uh, and this may not be related to what these soldiers are uh, suffering from with PSD or a way to solve that or, or help um, ease that affliction that they have. But that being said, I think all of us who ride know that uh, there is something therapeutic about some alone time on the seat uh, or maybe when you're with a group of friends. Well, I think you're right, and I think that's the really interesting capability that they have latched onto. Mm-hmm. The uh, the folks that, of course, get benefit are riders, and I think there is this natural affinity, as you said, of a group of fellow riders on a somewhat rough ride. You know, it's a little bit hard. It's not simple. Um, and that opens up the communication path because it's a somewhat, it, it's a shared experience, a certain amount of stress, not a huge amount, and uh, you're with like people. And I think the way they conduct the therapy sessions each evening is it's people who actually have already been through the program and who are knowledgeable about how they felt when they were able to talk about what had them by the throat. And I think it's that sense of similarity that builds camaraderie among the riders and opens the door for them to finally talk about their experience, why it's so frightening, and not feel ashamed to have shared that with folks who are similarly suffering. And I think that's one of the reasons it's been so darn successful. Wow. Well, that's impressive, Brooke. Uh, good good for you for being a part of this and putting your skills and, and knowledge uh, with Airheads uh, to work to benefit this foundation. So next thing we want to talk about here is this bike is going to be put up for auction with the proceeds going uh, to this charity. And I didn't write the name down. What is it called again? Uh, 
the charity name is Motorcycle Relief Project. Thank you. The place I'm going to auction it is likely going to be Bring a Trailer, otherwise known as Bat. Yeah. <laughs> and, boy, we could talk a lot about that. That's been a constant subject of discussion on a number of podcasts uh, over the past year plus that we've been doing this. Um <clears throat> What? Let me ask you: Have you been watching or following Airhead or motorcycle auctions just from afar on uh, Bring a Trailer? Yeah, I actually subscribe to it in particular for all the motorcycle listings. I'm always curious as to you know what people are putting up, and in the end, what's appealing to people and you know what's not. Um, and some of the uh, obviously some of the BMWs that are vintage. Uh, have a very, very strong auction price. You know, R90S is uh, obviously the R80G slash S. Those are all icons. And, of course, they always generate generally a pretty good price at auction. Now, have you spoke with Bring a Trailer about this? Um, Do you know if there are different considerations with a reserve or no reserve for uh, uh, an auction that is for charity? Well, how are you approaching that? Is this any different than a normal auction somebody might do? Well, I haven't had a chance to chat with them yet, Um, so I'll learn what I need to know when I I do that. Okay. Um, But you do, you know, so the answer to your question is, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) We'll both find out pretty soon, I guess, won't we? Yes, yes. I'm hoping to be able to uh, uh, get this wrapped up by maybe the end of July, 1st of August. And when I say wrapped up, I want to be able to break the bike in, meaning get to at least 600 miles. Yeah. But generally, I go to about 1,000 on what I call the shakedown. And I make sure that by the time I'm through, everything's perfect. I don't want any issues. Yeah, yeah, and I think that will go a long way to uh, boost interest in the in the bike. Meaning, it's not something I just finished, and you figure out what might not be working. <laughs> Anything yeah. that might have popped up, I fixed. It should be perfect. Yeah, that's, that's my goal. Yeah, yeah, and I'm sure it will be. in a thousand miles uh, is a good target number there, uh, for sure. Yeah, I think it is. I mean, it's enough to I think give any potential buyer confidence mm-hmm. that it's a sound machine. And so as we're speaking and doing this interview, it's June 28th. So you had mentioned uh, you're hoping to have this uh, up on Bring a Trailer in the coming weeks, end of July, early August is your time frame. So folks are going to hear about this on the podcast and have a a chance to check out the auction and hopefully bid it up uh, to a nice high number. You know, one thing I've seen, and this is more, uh, I guess, from my perspective, perspective is anecdotal because I've not been involved in any bring a trailer auctions only as kind of like you as as a lurker uh, but I have read uh, some comments from folks who have uh, listed things on there to some friends of mine who've sold some bikes on there and I know sometimes it can be difficult to get a bike on there uh, with a reserve uh, at least at least these days, it can be a little bit more difficult. So I'll be interested to see how that works out for you and if they're, you know, taking into consideration what this is for and if they'll allow you to get get a reserve price on there. Are you okay with doing it without a reserve? 
Well, you raise a good point. And yeah. I've been arguing, you know, me, myself, and I are always chatting inside <laughs> my head. <laughs> and uh, I've been debating whether I should put it up with a reserve or not. Yeah. But um, that's an interesting point you make. And so when I do chat with them, um, you know, that'll be a, a question I'll ask and try to understand what's the best approach. Yeah. Okay. Well, good. Well, all that's out of the way, so everybody will look forward to checking this out on Bring a Trailer, hopefully, uh, assuming uh, the listing goes okay. And as you mentioned uh, in our pre-conversation here, uh, you're going to be posting a little bit more information on this. Uh, where else? Well, I'm gonna, I've, I've been running a uh, series on the MOA, blogs, uh, MOA uh, website under the Airhead category, so I've been posting all the work. And I'll make an announcement there regarding the uh, upcoming auction. And also the uh, Airhead Beamer Club, uh, Micah Peak Group. Uh, it's not really the Airhead Beamer Club, but the Micah Peak Airhead Group um, has been aware of everything I've been doing. So I'll make a note there. And uh, I'm going to, I think, end up having an article in the ABC uh, Airmail Magazine. Oh, good. Project, but I'm not sure that that will be able to get out at all before the auction. Sure, um, sure. But you know that's okay. I yeah. think there'll be enough. Uh, the interesting thing is there's over eleven thousand uh, visits to the uh, uh, postings I've been making on the MOA. So good that that has a fairly large audience looking at the project, and I'm hopeful that uh, you know that will help increase the bid activity. And I'm also going to let uh, MRP know, they had told me when I started the project and I let them know what I was going to do, they said, please be sure to tell us when you're ready for the auction because we have people who donate to us and uh, we have people who've been through the program and we'll make a general announcement to them to help you know, increase interest in the auction. So I think that'll be another uh, place that I'll try to make sure people know it's available. Excellent. Excellent. Okay, so that's sort of the nuts and bolts, so to speak, uh, of the auction, uh, motorcycle relief project as well, and what to look forward to uh, with the listing and the bidding. So I'm anxious now, of course, really, Brooke, to get into the build and uh, restoration on this bike uh, in earnest. Um, first off, why the R80 ST for this project, and how did the bike come to you? I think I remember when we spoke uh, for your first uh, interview on the program here, you sort of take a little bit more of a grassroots uh, approach to this, I should say. You're not necessarily seeking out a bike. Uh, I think the bikes sort of come to you in one way or another, uh, kind of in the cards, so to speak. Is that how you found this one? Well, yeah, I kind of was thinking about doing a project uh, and actually doing a project for charity. And um, I thought about maybe doing a GS. I've never worked on one, but boy, they were really expensive yes. to get a hold of, even in basket condition. Mm -hmm. And I said to myself, you know, the ST is a derivative. Um, maybe there's uh, one of those around. They're not... Uh, you know, they're not as well known. So I posted a note to the local Colorado ABC site, the Airhead Beamer Club site, just asking if anybody knew of someone who might have a 
you know, an ST around. And Matt Isles, who owns Isles Motorsports here in Denver, uh, responded in like three minutes. He said, well, Clem Sikowski, uh, who used to own BMW Denver, and I know Clem for, bought my first bike from him in 1975. Matt used to work for him. Anyway, he said, you know, Clem's estate actually has one of them. And Clem had died about uh, six months or so before I started on this road. Um, so I thought to myself, well, that's interesting. So I went ahead and contacted Clem's daughter and went and looked at the bike. And uh, he picked it up in 1997, but never actually got around to doing anything on it. It was a, quote, project bike, unquote. Uh, what that boils down to is most of the parts were missing. (laughs) (laughs) But in any event, we went through Clem's uh, storehouses, and I managed to find some of the parts that I needed. So uh, that's kind of how I got going on this. Now, as I said, I knew Clem because I bought my first BMW from him in 1975, and I road raced that R75-6 in the summer of 1976, and uh, Clem used to give me advice. He used to race motocross and all, but he'd give me advice and even let me use one of the bays in his shop sometimes just to uh, do things on the bike before the next race. And I've kept up with him ever since. And when I started getting into rebuilding airheads, which was uh, oh, circa 2009, you know, I'd contact him when I didn't know about something or if I was looking for a tool, and he'd loan it to me. He'd spend time telling me how to do work I didn't know how to do, and he'd always been just very supportive. So I was so sad when he passed, but then when this showed up, uh, it just kind of struck me that the universe was tapping me on the shoulder, sure. saying, you know what, you need to take this bike. This is the one that needs to go to charity and try to rebuild this thing factory new if you possibly can, in recognition of Clem's really great skills, as well as for the value for the MRP, the Motorcycle Relief Project. So it's sort of as if, uh, as I said, the universe tapped me on the shoulder and said, hey, young man, this is the bike. (laughs) (laughs) And I guess in some ways, you know, you mentioned uh, how Clem was supportive of you. Uh, you, Sounds like you all had a good, yeah, a great friendship. So in many ways, this is almost uh, as much... Uh, a tribute to him in in many ways as as anything else. Yes, you're quite right. I view this project as a tribute to him, and uh, Clem was always meticulous and a high-quality fella. So if I ever think I can just get away with something, I stop for a minute and go, no, (laughs) (laughs) go back and get that right, fella. (laughs) Yeah, he's sort of looking over your shoulder, so to speak. Yeah, so to speak. Oh, and the other part of this that really was fascinating, you know, I was posting the work on my website, and uh, about three, four months into the project, I got an email from a brother of the original owner of this bike. Oh, wow. And the brother sold it to the fellow who contacted me, and then he sold it to a third person, which is who Clem bought it from. And this guy sent me pictures that he scanned that his brother took of the bike. So I thought that was, again, you know, just this nice closed circle. Yeah, yeah, I was, I've been looking at your site, Brooke, for years, 
and all of a sudden, my brother's bike shows up. <laughs> How about that? I thought that was pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, and it, it is unusual for that to happen. Uh, but then yeah. again, but then again, if you think about it in today's world with you know the internet and connectivity, uh, and especially you know once you're in that sort of closed circle of airhead uh, owners, uh, whether it's you know the brother of somebody or a family member or a friend, in in some ways it's not unusual to hear uh, from somebody uh, if they're still around that there was they had a connection to that bike as well. But that that's a neat part of the story, just the same. Yeah, it was pretty cool, and you're quite right. The uh, the community of Airhead people is a good tight group, mm -hmm. and folks kind of you know monitor things. And it was just I was just uh, kind of bowled over when that happened. I thought, wow, that's just uh, a confirmation that I did pick the right bike. Yeah, that's <laughs> exactly right. You sure did. We've teamed up with the BMW Motorcycle Owners of America to offer a special membership deal for our listeners. Now, before you think, wait a second, Darren, how much is this going to cost? Let's just stop right here and say it's free. This is a complimentary one-year digital membership for Airhead 247 podcast listeners. The MOA has a goal of adding 200 new members over the next several months. That's a lot. But I think they can reach that goal with our help. By supporting the MOA with this offer, you're also supporting this program. And let's say this again, it is free of charge. Visit 247.bmwmoa.org and complete the online form using the activation code AIRHEAD247. That's easy to remember. You'll receive your free one-year digital membership, and that will give our program credit for referring you. Or go to the description section of this podcast. We've got a direct link right there. Membership in the MOA offers discounts at hotels, a monthly magazine, great deals on roadside assistant programs, plus a fantastic network of BMW owners that share your passion. All this, plus you're supporting our efforts here with the podcast, bringing you unique insight into the world of the 247 Airhead. That website, once again, for your free one-year digital membership, 247.bmwmoa.org. Use the code AIRHEAD247. Thank you very much for your support. Back to our chat with Brooke Reams. And I remember watching uh, some of the videos on this, which we should mention. Uh, they're great documentation, per usual, uh, for you on your YouTube channel. So, folks, if you're just hearing about this for the first time, we want to invite you uh, to check out uh, the YouTube channel, uh, Brooks Airhead Garage. Uh, along, there's this R80 ST build and all the other great stuff you've done over the years. Um, anyway... Uh, what I wanted to say here is, uh, I think I recall you, uh, either mentioned it in the video probably, or maybe in another conversation we had, you also partnered, we should mention with, uh, EME, Euromoto Electric on this as well. So tell me about that. Well, yeah, Norm Schwab owns EME these days. He's from South Africa, used to be a mining engineer, and, uh, he decided to get into this business. And uh, I've known him over the years. In any event, I uh, happened to mention to him that I was going to do a, you know, a charity build for MRP. And he said, wow, uh, 
I've been donating to them over the years. Oh, no kidding. I'll tell you what, I'll just contribute all the parts you need for the project. Just let me know what you want. And I just was bowled over. I, I mean, it's just very thoughtful and generous of him. And he said, you know, and if I haven't got the part you want, don't worry. Let me know. I'll go get it for you. Wow. So that was nice. And just to clarify, EME's grown out of doing just motors, you know, BMW electrical uh, oh, yeah. components. Yeah. They now have well over 3,000 different BMW parts in stock. And in my humble opinion, they've probably got the biggest airhead part inventory of any place I've seen in the United States. And generally, the stuff is on the shelf. If you connect with them, generally, it's right there. You can get it immediately. And, of course, for me, they're uh, <laughs> they're just down the road. So I just drive over, pick up the parts, and I'm ready to rock and roll. No, uh, you know, delay for shipping or anything. Brooke, let so me just in, let me very, interrupt. Very nice relationship. Let me interrupt and say that's just unfathomable to me and probably anybody else to think that you can drive 20 minutes and just go get what you need. I mean, you are so fortunate in that regard. Oh, good Lord, am I not? I mean, it is such an unusual capacity to be able to do that with them. Yes, I, I do agree with you. I'm very lucky. <laughs> <laughs> There's um, a fellow I'm friends with. Uh, his name's Nick. He runs an Instagram site uh, called uh, Airhead Misfits. He also posts on ADV. I know you're, you know who I'm talking about. And um, <clears throat> Nick had mentioned one time, I think we either we were talking or in a post somewhere on Adventure Rider or somewhere else, he said he, he and his wife were cons thinking about moving or going somewhere. And somebody chimed in, well, gosh, that means you, you wouldn't live next to uh, EME anymore. And he, without missing a beat, said that was my number one concern about leaving uh, the Denver metro area was not not having that short drive to get motorcycle parts. Yeah, I mean it's uh, it's like in the old days where a dealership often had what you wanted. <laughs> yeah, yeah, what a concept, right? Yeah, <laughs> good grief. Okay, so uh, and kudos uh, to Norm, uh, EME, and and all the staff there uh, for supporting you uh, for this project. Uh, that's, that's really good to know. All right, so. I'm assuming, Brooke, then you probably, and maybe I'm wrong here, but I'm just going to go out on a limb and say you probably did a little bit of research uh, on maybe the history uh, of the R80ST to sort of familiarize with yourself with it. Um, my recollection of this uh, particular motorcycle is really, I guess, from an interview I did with Tom Cutter last year uh, when he was selling the GSs. Uh, I guess where was he in New York somewhere when he yeah, was? He at, was uh, he was at a dealership on Staten Island. That's right. That they apparently he was doing front wheel conversions on the GSs to make them uh, uh, putting I guess what a eighteen inch or seven or what is it a night? What am I trying to say? What's the front wheel yeah, size? He went to uh, he went to street tires and wheels. Yes, uh, street handlebars, an R sixty five front fender. Right. And then the other thing he had was there was an auto dealership, and he would let the customer pick whatever color they wanted based on the automobile, BMW automobile colors, and they could custom paint the bike for him. So it was a very interesting early 1980s. 
very interesting. You want a custom bike? We can put it together for you. Yeah, <laughs> and the and I guess it's my understanding that's really what precipitated uh, BMW to introduce that model in earnest as a production model. Well, I think it did because all of a sudden the GS sales through Staten Island's dealership were way up, and I think uh, you know obviously that got the attention of BMW. And, of course, Tom has a history with them. They knew him. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. He was part of the race team, you know. That's with right. Udo Gettle and all. Yep. So uh, they actually got a hold of him and said, hey, we're thinking about putting together an ST version of the GS, and would you like to come over to Munich and sit down with the marketing and engineering team and, you know, give us your input on what you think it ought to have in order to be sellable in the United States. So he actually did end up being part of the uh, process of putting together this bike. Now, I've known Tom for a long time, and I uh, just thought that was also kind of cool. <laughs> he, had, he had bike number one. It was delivered to him by BMW. That's right. Um, and unfortunately, he had to let it go. But uh, as I look at this and put it work into it, I also think about Tom. Okay. Uh, there's another guy who wants high quality out of what I do, so I better get it right. <laughs> <laughs> now, the the ST has always had, and this isn't really the right way to say this, but uh, for lack of a better term right now, we're speaking extemporaneously, kind of a cult following or a cult term as being the, the best uh, of the airhead road handling bikes. You You hear that term yeah. a lot. Um, I have a good friend you've also interviewed, uh, Demir Senek. Yes. Uh, who he, he just lives up the road from me, too. But he's got an ST, and when he learned I was doing this project, he said, I tell you, Brooke, you're going to hate letting go of it. <laughs> the one I've got just handles like a dream. <laughs> That's, yeah, I was going to ask you. We'll talk about that as we, as we go through the chat here, uh, your feeling about uh, letting it go. But uh, that has been something we hear a lot about that that particular motorcycle and i i guess it's ironic in a way or peculiar in a way because they were such a limited production run just uh really two model years uh if i'm recalling correctly on, on the st um and it makes for a unique bike uh some unique parts uh st only parts uh for example uh and i want to talk about those too as we go on but um, were you, when, when you were looking at this bike, had you heard those kind of things, the, the reputation it had about, you, you mentioned, uh, speaking with Demir, uh, about it, but were you familiar with the bike, uh, before getting into it? Yeah, I'd done a little bit of uh, reading on it and, uh, I had learned that there were just a few less than a thousand that sold in the U S you know, you're right. It was uh, available for the 1983 in 1984 model years, mm -hmm. and I think there's about 980 of them sold here, and then in the rest of the world, it was just a little less than 5,000. Wow. So out of the Airhead model line, uh, it's it's really a, a bit rare, quite it, honestly. It is, and I've always been puzzled why it wasn't a little bit, why it wasn't more of a collector bike or would bring higher prices because of the limited production run? Well, what I've heard through the grapevine, 
is that a number of people who did pick up old STs decided to convert them into GSs. Mm -hmm. And so actually what's happened is the number of original STs is much less these days than the, you know, total number sold because a lot of folks have decided they wanted to convert. And, uh, you know, I guess I could see that because, as I said earlier, GS bikes have gotten pretty expensive. But if you started with an ST, it might not be too bad when you got done. Yeah. In any event, um, I, I, as I said earlier, my goal was to bring this thing back to life, uh, kind of look like what it would have been like on the Staten Island dealership <laughs> floor when you walked in the door. <laughs> Tell me about uh, your sort of general overview and plan when you get a bike like this. Uh, I have a feeling... You'll, you know, you've you've made the purchase. You bring the bike home. What? Where do you go from there? Well, my usual approach is I do a very detailed inventory. Uh, I take a lot of pictures. I look at everything, and I generally start a spreadsheet, and I start going through what I think are parts that I can repair and reclaim, and those that I think I need to go get new and build out the spreadsheet, which more or less informs me of the total price tag for the project. The other thing is, I before I really get going, I do sit down and make decisions about what's the final bike going to look like. And on this one, um, I decided I wanted it to be as close to original as possible. So I didn't do any upgrades to the electrical system, even though I replaced the whole electrical system. I kept with the stock parts because my goal was to do as close to a restore as I could get. So that guided, you know, the process over the last 14 months in round numbers. That's about how long I've been working on this. Um, and as I said, when I looked at it, uh, the electrical system to me definitely have looked abused so the clear top decision was okay just replace everything because i wanted it to be as reliable as possible i didn't want to play around with parts that have been sitting around for over 20 years and it did look like at some point the bike had been outside so that that definitely told me the electrical system was at the top of the list for replacement yeah so you mentioned using original parts and particular with the electrical system. I've, one of the fellows I interviewed uh, earlier on in the podcast series, Mark Francois, who does uh, great R90S restorations. Yeah. He, he uses all originals. I mean, they're the only thing he's doing on putting on the bike that wasn't original is something he just simply cannot get. Uh, or he just has to do out of necessity. Yes. When you're... Well, that's true on this one, too, because I could not get an ST muffler. Um, Simon Rock indicated that they had them, and I tried to get them. EME actually resells Simon Rock parts. Right. But I could, never, I could never get the muffler. So I finally went to Kine, K-E-I-H-A-N, mm -hmm. I probably pronounced it wrong, they're the guys in the U.K. who make stainless steel exhaust systems for the uh, airhead bikes and other bikes. And they had a GS muffler and an adapter kit. So 
so I could mount the uh, heat shield over the muffler, the ST heat shield. Yes, 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 so yes. So that, that ended up having to be a compromise. Now, having said that, I mentioned this to Tom Cutter, and he said, well, Brooke, to be honest with you, the ST runs better with the GS muffler than it did with the ST muffler. Hmm. So if you've got to make that trade out, uh, it actually will improve performance. So I thought, okay. <laughs> I, I, Interesting. I, I couldn't stay pristine on that, but it uh, it won't hurt anything. Yeah, so let me ask you, did you even look for uh, a second-hand muffler? Well, I tried, but I couldn't see anything that looked to be in particularly good shape. And the one that I had on the bike was pretty rusted. Yeah. Um, I actually gave it to a friend of mine who who just wanted it. But, uh, you know, it, it, it made me nervous about it. So anyhow, that that's kind of the long and the short story of uh, the compromise that I had to make on the exhaust system. One last note on that exhaust. So that is the same exhaust uh, that you would find on a, a GS... Paris Dakar of that era. So it came with the chrome exhaust and a different heat shield, but similar. Yes. Right? Yeah, different side covers on that. Right. Too. Yes. Exactly. Right. So I have a R80, uh, I have an 81 GS, and it has most of the Paris Dakar kit it came with, everything except the chrome muffler and heat shield. And so, ah. so I, you know, I have been searching on and off. For the better part of four years, I, it literally, Brooke, I mean, it was one of those things where, you know, and I, I'm speaking something you're familiar with and a lot of guys who are listening, you know, you've got your eBay search saved. You're always looking on uh, IBMWR and all the different forums for parts. And gosh, I can think a couple times I'd see a, one of those exhausts come up, the chrome exhaust uh, with the mounting things. I'd call and it was sold, you know. Yeah, just like that. <laughs> yeah, I, I missed it a hundred times. Finally, I want to say, I guess it was last year. Uh, was it some guy, um, Osh at Osh Moto, I guess, in California? Yeah, I know them. Yeah. He had one listed on eBay. I saw it and just, I mean, I bought it right away. You know, I'd been looking for, for one for almost four years. Uh, so when you mentioned the muffler, I just was wondering how you handled that. I remember seeing Siebenrock had said they were going to be offering one, but it never came to fruition. So, uh, well, it did. They had one. Oh, or, or there may be one or two. They let me know they did, and since EME had the order in for it, you know, I didn't reply, but I let Norm know that they had one, and they didn't send it to EME. They sent it to whoever else, you know. And then I did actually find a used one on eBay that looked to be in good shape. Yeah. And I, uh, the company that was selling it, I, I took the order on eBay, bought it. They took my check. I never heard from them for three weeks. I called them back up. They said, no, no, it's sold. Oh, geez, Louise. <laughs> so I finally got a refund after three weeks. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that just was not in the cards, I guess, obviously. No, it didn't seem like the no. world was going to let me do that. No. <laughs> Okay, so, uh, and one quick backtrack then, talking about the electrical system on this. So, did you go with, what? how did you handle the ignition? Is it a bean can, original bean can, or what's in there now? Yeah, so when I looked at the original bean can, it, uh, I decided to go and use EME's trade-in program. 
So they have a guy who rebuilds the bean cans. Oh, okay. And you, you know, basically you give them the core, which is the one you have, and they give you one right off the shelf. So that's what I did on that. Interesting. Okay, I did not know that 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 was even. A yeah, service. they offer that as a as a uh, nice option, and so I took advantage of that. Okay, and uh, I, you know the first engine start, the bike ran, and I put ten miles on it, and it didn't die. So so far, <laughs> things are working. Yeah, yeah, that's a good sign. Good sign. One of the reasons so many airheads are still on the road today is because of great parts suppliers and enthusiasts like Boxer 2 Valve. William and Edward Plam at Boxer 2 Valve have years of experience with the 247 airhead, dating back to their first repair shop and dealership in the early 1980s. Boxer 2 Valve stocks and sources only premium parts and tools, so no need to worry if you're getting a cheap pattern or shortcut part. They simply don't carry them. Boxer 2 Valve has extensively researched which parts are correct for your motorcycle. Just enter your year and model and you'll see only the parts that fit your bike. That takes the guesswork out of the ordering process. Real-time stock information that is also available, so no need to guess what may be on back order that could delay your project. Also, if you're digging into a repair for the first time, be sure to check out Boxer 2 Valve's video repair series. These cover both twin shock and post-81 models and are great tutorials that go step-by-step -step through a variety of repairs and parts replacement procedures. The video series is a great workshop companion, one I've used many times over the years. So for all your airhead parts needs, Boxer2Valve.com. That's the number two. Boxer2Valve.com. All right, let's rejoin our conversation with Brooke. There are some unique parts uh, on the G, on the uh, ST rather. And I guess that the muffler and side covers, probably the two I can think of that are specifically, or at least right off the top of my head, uh, specific ST parts. Um, yeah, I believe they are. There was also, I think, an R65 ST oh. here in the U.S., but uh, I think those may fit on that, too. Yeah. Now, was the dash, uh, I don't know particularly, but I think you will here. I'll, I'll ask this as a question then. Was it the same, is it the same dash that's on an R65? I think it is. Um, I'm not absolutely positive, but I think... It's, you know, a dual instrument cluster, yeah. kind of like what you'd have gotten on the uh, R75-6, mm -hmm. similar kind of design. But inside the tachometer is all of the uh, warning lights. So there are no warning lights, on, you know, in the center of the dash. So that that's the slight difference. And, you know, turn signals, both the left and right are separate indicators. So a little different. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. It uh, it all just kind of fits right on the handlebars, and, you know, mounts on there. Um, yeah, so that, that that was the difference. It's not the same as the GS, no. which, you know, has a little instrument indicator lights on one side. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, so the dash, uh, the fender, front fenders, kind of unique to that bike, uh, if yeah, I, I recall. Yeah, I think that is, too, yeah. And, <laughs> and also the front forks the um 
Now, again, I, I don't know exactly because I'm not terribly familiar with the R65 or really even what the general differences are on the, the ST, but I seem to recall, um, well, I do recall, when I bought my GS, I had a bad rattling in the forks, and mm. somebody turned me on to a service bulletin that addressed that with, uh, I think it was a spring carrier or a little bushing in there uh, yeah. that, that was later replaced. So those front forks are similar, uh, f I think, for the R65 and for the ST. Again, somebody else might know better than you and I. Uh, well, it, I believe that's true okay. from what I understood. Yeah. And again, I may be wrong because I'm not, you know, a guru here. Right. Um, this project is a learning project for yeah, me. That's right. Uh, but what I believe is true is there are 65 forks that yeah. were put on to the R80 frame. Yeah, so this is an interesting bike in that, uh, you know, parts of different models mm -hmm. were all put together to create the ST layout. Now, did you, when you did the forks, were you aware of that uh, service bulletin on there, and were, were you able to update uh, those parts uh, in that build? Well, I'm not sure that I did. Okay. So that's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, well, that's fine. Um if you noticed some clinking or clanking, you would have realized that uh, that that should have been done. So if there's nothing going on in there, that may have been done at some point. I think it was a, I don't want to say it was a recall. I think, again, I don't want to, I'm, don't take what I'm saying here, uh, listeners, as the 100% uh, truth. But I think sometimes it was a case where if a customer complained about the issue or they brought the bike in for a, a service they would do the change. It wasn't like a recall where just everybody who bought this bike bring it in now for safety issues. It was more of, okay, the next time the bike's here or if the customer has an issue, we'll do this uh, upgrade and change uh, to relieve that, uh, relieve that problem. So that may have been done on that bike if you're not noticing anything. It was a problem on mine, and uh, I can't recall. It's been so long since I've done it and looked at the service bulletin, but it it was a, a, the parts were available, and it was a relatively simple uh, procedure to to take care of that. Um, other things I think that are unique about the ST, uh, we mentioned the the exhaust, uh, we mentioned the dash. Um, that also had what are the what were the handlebars on that bike. Uh, was it a GS style bar or was it a different road bar? I can't recall. No, they were originally road bars and I got a new set uh, to replace them. They were pretty rusted. Okay. Um, now the new set actually turned out to be a little bit uh, lower rise than the original ST, but it's quite comfortable. No, no problem there. And of course the other thing about this is that you end up with a monoshock which uh, is sort of innovative in the era. Yeah, um, you know, that's the truth. Everything else they were making for airheads were twins uh, until they reintroduced the airheads in 88, and then everybody went back to the monoshock. Yeah, yeah. So, it, so that was different. Isn't and, of course, there's no circuit board in the headlight, so the wiring harness doesn't have all the connections inside the headlight. The only thing in there is the headlight bulb and the parking light. That was a really... That, that was different. That was a really big... Uh, 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 that's not the right way to put it. Let me rephrase that. 
that was a, as far as I'm concerned, a really great engineering twist uh, from getting out of the spaghetti bucket in the headlight and, and getting everything on the frame, reorganizing yeah. it, making it easily accessible. Uh, in fact, I can remember the press and advertisement posters for that bike, of which I have a few for the GS when that came out. There were this pictures were specifically showing uh, how all the electronics were integrated uh, into the frame rail and how they were easily accessible. You know, it was one of these selling points uh, of the bike saying, you know, and you know how all the uh, uh, switch gear just plugs right in. Uh, all your relays and everything are right there. It's really a, a, a great sort of modern uh, way of handling all that wiring compared to where it had been before. Yeah, uh, that was interesting when I got into it. Like I say, this was a learning project for yeah. me. And uh, that was, uh, everything was out there and available. Having said that, um, I will also say that it's also available to water. Even though it's got the gas tank around it, um, if you really get into a monsoon rainstorm, <laughs> <laughs> you know, there there's uh, more opportunity for some of that to see water. That's a good but point. I'm sure it all holds up just fine. That's a good point. Know. That is a really good point, yeah. Not uh, not in the uh, protective shell uh, of the headlights, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. Uh, one other Anyhow, thing I'm... Yeah, it was, a, it was a lot easier to see what you're doing, what goes where, and as you pointed out... You just pull the gas tank, and there it is. Everything's right there. Looking at the, all of the basic fundamental electrical connections. Yeah, it was funny. Be to get to. Yeah, because I had had, you know, most of the airheads I'd had um, for the past 20 years, or for a long time, rather, you know, were uh, I've had the, the GS, I had a PD, a 92 PD, and, of course, I'd had a um, Slash 5 for a long time. But uh, when I, you know, when I bought, uh, got back into the twin shocks here recently, uh, it was just, I was sort of had to remember, good grief, that, that headlight bucket. What a pain in the butt uh, that can be sometimes. And, and I saw uh, a fella, just parenthetically here, on Adventure Rider, who just re uh, put a, on a Slash 6, who just installed a new wiring harness. And he really took some time to do it right. And he spent a lot of time just getting all the wire bends correct, uh, inside of the headlight, and just did a one of the cleanest wiring jobs on a on a slash six I've seen. So you know when it's done right, it makes sense. I mean everything's color coded and and all that sort oh, of yeah. thing. You know they're yeah, they're you follow the color coding and you follow the wiring with the same stripes and all. Yeah, quite honestly, building up the connections is is not too hard. No, what gets hard is when you open it up and you're looking at something. You, 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 of course, as you know, you get you see this huge spaghetti. <laughs> but again, right. you know the car, the wire colors are your key to mastery. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. So one neat thing, uh, Brooke, I, I thought you did uh, on this build, and it's in it's in one of the YouTube videos in particular, <clears throat> was you basically hooked all the electrical components, lighting components, I guess, um, not all the electrical components, but a, a number of them up. Just hook them up to a battery, laid it out on the floor and went through how all the connections worked, uh, the different connector blocks, and uh, that was, for you, a way to sort of make sense of uh, how everything worked, and also a neat way to sort of test all the components before you put them on. So, so tell me about that process. I'd never seen that done before. I thought it was really clever. 
Well, thank you for that. I, uh, you, you're quite right. This is a different harness, a different bike, and my sense was I needed to educate myself. So the simplest thing to do was basically construct a functional wiring system on the shop floor. Uh, I couldn't uh, put the ignition system in, and I didn't put the starter motor in, but right. I'd already tested the starter motor separately. And make sure I knew what went where, plug everything in. They were all brand-new components, but every now and then a new component fails. And I just figured out this will teach me before I put it all in the bike, everything goes where, what plugs into what. And uh, it it was more for my education. That said, though, I, I'm hopeful that that part of the video where I show each of the connectors and what their purpose is and how to identify it by the wire colors, that may come in handy to somebody who's trying to diagnose problems in the future. Indeed. Indeed. So also, Brooke, any... When going now, you said this was about a 14-month process, and I remember <clears throat> from our last conversation, you mentioned that when you're approaching approaching these builds, you've had a couple different experiences. One was where I think it was with the R, one of the RSs you did, where you were kind of under the gun to get the bike finished. And yeah, that 77 R100 I wanted to have done so I could ride it to the 40th anniversary rally that Todd Trumbor was holding in Pennsylvania. Right. Yeah, so I was, uh, I, I picked the bike up with about a year to go. <laughs> and not that this is indicative of that process, but again, you know, you were in a, you were under a time crunch, for lack of a better word. You had to have it finished yeah. by a date. And if I'm remembering correctly, there you had a, a transmission failure because of a, a 12 cent circlip that was just the wrong size. Is that, am I remembering that? Yeah, you're right. I uh, rebuilt the tranny, my first tranny rebuild. Mm -hmm. and, uh, when I got uh, to about uh, the Pennsylvania, West Virginia line, I'd been having troubles and bad noises out of it that day. And it did turn out after we did the diagnosis with the help of Tom Cutter that the uh, dealership that I went to sold me the wrong sized circlip for the shift uh, uh, cams assembly. So the shift cam had come loose. <laughs> now, I know how, now I, uh, I know how you, uh, I don't know you that well, but having watched your videos, I know your process, at least I think I do, and having read your blog and everything. And I'm guessing, Brooke, that you probably even compared what you pulled off versus what you put on, and there was probably not much of a discernible difference to the naked eye there. Uh, well, and, that, and that's how that sneak... That, but on that particular bike, I did not check that circlip. Okay, all right. And that's my fault. You're quite right, because the best thing you can do is verify a new part against yeah. the original. Right. And if there's a difference, you know, I go to Micah Peak Airhead Forum and say, hey, I found a difference. Was there an update to the part? Sometimes there are, mm -hmm. you know, but no, I didn't do that, and I paid the price. Yeah. <laughs> well, in the end, you got the transmission fixed, and you made it to the rally. So, uh, oh, but I did. I, I, I did make it to the rally, and I made it home. And uh, yeah, after that, I've never had any issues with that bike. <laughs> I've got about twenty-two thousand on it now. Oh, good, good. Well, and I bring that story up uh, and mention that because 
uh, when we spoke last, you use that as a learning experience for yourself to say, look, I don't want to do a project or a build like that again. It takes the fun out of it. Uh, it, yep. it takes the quote unquote Zen out of it, so to speak, uh, the enjoyment out of the whole process. So it sounds like with this one, time was not really of a concern. You did this on your own terms, on your own time. And I'm guessing that the, as a result, it was enjoyable as you expected? Yes, it was. Um, although I will say there was trepidation in that lots of differences in this particular bike from the others I've worked on. And so many things were missing that I, you know, had to figure out how stuff goes together. So I certainly had a little more trepidation. And when I went to do the first engine start, which I did complete, uh, there was a certain amount of heart pounding in the chest. <laughs> <laughs> Always is. Always is. Gee, I hope this doesn't blow up, smoke up. Uh, and, you know, it actually did run. Now, so that was the huge relief. And then when I did the uh, first 10-mile uh, part of the break-in, uh, everything worked okay, except I couldn't quite get the bike in first gear. Well, I finished the ride anyway. And then I realized what had happened is I hadn't gotten the linkage quite adjusted. Oh. And the bottom of the gear shifter was just touching the header pipe that goes under it. So I adjusted the gear shifter, and now it works just fine. Perfect. <laughs> and that's why you do all this. You, yeah, you right. You sort out the little mistakes you've made along the way. Now, I seeming to recall on this one, um, on this particular build, I saw uh, you did a nice video on just cleaning the engine block. Uh, which yeah. is pretty impressive. Uh, that it's a lot of work that goes involved. That's involved in the method you're using. I mean, going back and forth and scrubbing and this and that. I have to say, I'm uh, having not done a true restoration. Most of the bikes I buy and build back up, uh, they're just more of a refresh. At, you know, yeah. ref, ref, I'll use that term. I think you know what I'm saying. Uh, and a lot of times I'll just use a little bit of rub and buff on the on the engine cases and aluminum parts, not to get it brand new looking, but just to even out the patina and give it a uh, sort of standardized, even finish ac across the plane there. But you really took some time and went through getting that engine block cleaned. And I know that's something a lot of guys who buy bikes and want to either a restore or want to do a, a deep refresh of the bike are curious about how to go about that so maybe talk just talk a little bit about your process there well actually i have an article under the r75 slash 5 series and in it i document all the techniques i use for refinishing both aluminum and other parts and i talk about the chemicals i use and the technique um but to be clear, it's elbow grease. <laughs> yeah, 100%. <laughs> and patience. Mm -hmm. um, I often play jazz music while I do that work <laughs> because I find it uh, kind of gives me a little bit of energy, and it does get tedious. And the other thing to do, if you're feeling like this is tedious, stop. Come back tomorrow. Mm -hmm. Do the job right, but don't make it painful. Now, I'm sitting here in the shop right now looking at the bike. Yeah. And I had parts that were vapor blasted, like the front engine cover and the transmission uh, case, etc. And you know what? They match right up with the engine block. No kidding. There's no visible, there's no visible difference. So 
Wow. I'm happy that it actually turned out looking really nice. It does look uniform, wow. which was what I was hoping would be the case. But till I got the vapor blasted parts back, I wasn't sure I was going <laughs> to, you know, it was going to look really uniform, but it really does. So wow. I'm, I'm happy with that. <clears throat> That's impressive. And yes, yeah, so we'll direct uh, folks uh, to your blog uh, website page uh, for a little more detailed information uh, on uh, chemicals and, and process there on that. Uh, so back, yeah, back to this. Um, on this particular bike, were there some surprises uh, good, bad, or otherwise, uh, that you found? I mean, again, you said you were not as familiar with this era airhead as you were with the other ones you've done maybe in the past. So tell me about some things that may have been head scratchers for you, uh, that you had to take some time to figure out, or maybe some surprises, some pleasant surprises, uh, that you came, came across with this one. Well, yeah, there were some, this is true of all projects. In any event, when I uh, drained the transmission, I got a half a gallon of water. <laughs> that scared me. And I drained the engine, and I had a little bit of water, and that made me feel bad. So after I tore everything down, I found a couple of gears in the transmission that were pretty rusty because they'd been sitting in the water. So I ended up replacing more than I would normally do, mm -hmm. replaced a number of gears. And, you know, everything's back to where it should be. And when I went into the engine and went through everything, uh, the good news is the water was pretty much just sitting down in the bottom of the crankcase oil pan. Uh, there was no damage. So that was an uplifting good news. <laughs> and, um, you know, we already talked about the fun with the muffler. Yeah. The other part that turned out to be hard is the metallic silver paint. Uh, my painter, I gave him reference to Kent Holt, and said, you know, you should be able to get the color. It's glazerite paint. And time went by, and time went by, and time went by, and I wasn't hearing. Finally contacted the painter, and he said, well, I've never heard anything back from Kent. I tried to get a hold of him. I never got anything back from him. So I called BASF, which is who owns Glazerite mm -hmm. right now. Glazerite, I should say and asked them if they still had the color in stock, and they said, nope, it doesn't exist anymore. So that got my head scratched. Yeah. Phil Hawksley's site, which is one I use a lot for paint color code, Indeed. has a little note regarding uh, a company in the U.K. that makes, um, similar, uh, makes uh, paints that match, and it's called uh, RS Motorbike Paint Limited. So I looked it up, and they did indeed carry the metallic silver. So I let my painter know about it, and uh, hopefully it's a pretty good close match. So that was a bit of an adventure. <laughs> do, you, do you remember what the color code and paint scheme was offhand? Yeah, the color code on the fender is uh, 545, okay. which was the original designation for the metallic silver. And then, oh uh, yeah, and then the paint scheme, and then the scheme, then has a different number, if I'm remembering correctly. Yeah, that lets you know. Yeah, maybe the five four five is the scheme number. You know, I may be off on that. Actually. Yeah, and then the, yeah, I, I think it's the scheme number they put on the fender. Right, because that tells the painter or the dealer or whoever then uh, what the color pinstripe is and that kind of stuff too. I think. Yeah, I've got my pinstriper coming on Friday. Oh, okay. So we'll get that to match up pretty close. I now, think. 
<clears throat> yeah, so that, so, okay, I'm getting the picture of the bike in my head. So metallic, uh, the metallic gray, and then it's going to have red uh, striping? Yep, that's right. Red stripe on the tank and side covers only, nothing on the fenders. And where did you source the uh, battery cover decal? Oh, I got those. I got all the stickers and stuff uh, that I put back on the bike out of Heritage yep. stickers. Yep. And EME actually resells that stuff. That's right. Uh, as well, they've got an integration relationship with uh, with the guy there in uh, Italy who does all that. So I got uh, actually got all that stuff that I need out of uh, Euromoto Electrics again because they've added him as a supplier. So that's cool. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> okay, so you mentioned. Uh, Paintwork and parenthetically, we'll say pinstriping. Uh, you had uh, somebody vapor blast uh, the front engine cover. Ed, did you outsource anything else besides those two jobs? Yeah, I did. Um, I uh, ended up having Matt Isles here in town at Isles Motorsports rebuild the rear drive, and I got a chance to watch him do that and take pictures. And I posted a document on the website showing the process he went through and the special tools he used to rebuild the rear drive. Um, I uh, also had the heads rebuilt by Randy Long, uh, Long's Mechanical Services. He's the guy I always use for head work. He's been in this for years and years and years. And I also got the speedometer rebuilt by Terry Verla out in uh, Oregon. And I've, I usually go to Terry for uh, instrument work. He does a nice job. Now, uh, a lot of folks know about the metallurgy, or lack thereof, I should say, on the uh, 80, 81 to maybe 84 uh, airheads. Do you know, um, was there uh, any, did you talk with Randy about what he found when you sent him the heads, or was it just here they are, fix, you know, get them up to spec and send them back? Yeah, as far as I knew, it had the original... Uh exhaust valve seats and all in mm -hmm. it, which we know didn't do well with uh, BMW. They picked a stainless steel, and that ended up having poor heat transfer. Right. And this had over 64,000 miles on it. So it was clear to me that I was going to have him come do a complete rebuild. And, of course, he put in the new uh, proper seats and new exhaust valves. And I thought I had a little bit of uh, play in the valve guides, uh, which I talked to him about, mm -hmm. so he replaced everything. Uh, and he actually was kind enough to give me a discount on that work. Oh, good. As a contribution to the uh, Motorcycle Relief Project charity. Good for which him. Which I thought was very generous of him. Yeah, good for him. very nice of him to do that. And what was the condition, if you recall, of the pistons, rings, and uh, cylinder bore? Well, the bore I measured, and both bores were in spec. Uh, the rings I replaced... And then I used a uh, ball hone that Tom Cutter recommends for just putting a light hone into the Nicosil, uh so you get your rings to seat. So that's what I did, a very light, very, very careful light hone with the right balls made out of the right material. Uh, and then, you know, just buttoned it all back up. The uh, push rod, uh, the, sorry, the cam followers and all were in good shape. They, they hadn't rusted, so that was good news. And, you know, most everything else was in great condition. So, Brooke, I want to ask you, and this may be a sensitive question if you don't want to 
comment on it, that's fine. I think folks would understand. Um, do you know, or can you reveal sort of the, uh, an approximate uh, cost, just out of curiosity, just on the, not saying the work that you had done by other folks, but uh, just on your parts list uh, for this bike, do you be comfortable saying what that was? All right, so after we conducted this interview, Brooke emailed me with a correction on the project cost and part spend. In his email, Brooke noted the following. He said this, Darren, total cost was $17,000. My cost was $7,000 and EME and other donations totaled $10,000. So we'll not edit the incorrect totals you're about to hear that we discussed. There's some other information I don't want to edit out. Just please note the numbers you hear are incorrect and the numbers I just quoted you, the 17,000 total, 7,000 from Brooke, 10,000 in EME and other donations are the correct totals. Yeah, I keep a detailed cost uh, as I go. And again, as we said, EME donated parts, mm -hmm. but I kept a record of the retail price. So the total parts and services that I paid, uh, sorry, the total parts I paid for, uh, let me turn it around. I'll say it clearly. The parts EME supplied and some of my friends supplied, that yes. was about 17000 Wow. EME donated a good 99% of that. Wow. And my cost, which were all the various things for the services that I paid for and, you know, other stuff that. EME didn't supply. I was about seven, so this project's on the order of uh, twenty-four grand. Wow! I didn't honestly. I, I'm surprised to hear that the parts were that high. Yep, that's about what it would have been. Again, I didn't have a lot of them. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, well. First off, let me say thanks for sharing that. I'm. Mean, it's you know, some people don't want to mention that, uh, but I I thought this is sort of for charity and. Uh, it's so in this scenario, it seems to make sense that folks know what was put into the motorcycle on the front oh, end, yeah. rather than, you know, if you're, you know, trying to sell it for profit or something like that, that might be a little different story. Were you, were you, right. were you surprised at the parts cost or was that kind no, of what? No, not really. No? No, I, I generally, uh, I mean, this was more expensive than the other projects, but mm -hmm. that made sense because it was less of the bike to start with. So I didn't have a lot that I could salvage. So I knew it was going to be a pretty reasonably high price tag because, you know, I had to replace all kinds of things that weren't there. And, of course, as I told you earlier, I replaced the entire electrical system. Yeah, yeah, that's significant. Yeah, that, that certainly boosts the price. That's really Generally, I can salvage a fair number of parts. But on this bike, I decided the best thing to do for high reliability like I said earlier, was just replace it entirely. Now, if I'm not mistaken, this is probably going to be one of the first bikes you've done that you're not actually keeping. Is that right? You're right. This is the first one I've done a rebuild on that isn't going to have a home in my shop, or my garage, I should say. <laughs> and uh, obviously you're okay with that, but uh, just tell me your your feelings about that now that you've come to the sort of end of this. Well, I mean, it's going to go for a good cause, and that's that's comforting. Sure, sure. And I guess probably the hard part's going to come after I do the break-in and shakedown, 
and about a thousand miles, it may be the bike grows on me. (laughs) (laughs) But I tell myself, you know, this is just like your kids. You got to let them go out on their own and uh, make their own way and make their path in the world. Yeah, yeah. So that's what this bike's going to do. It's going to have, I hope, a good home, a very uh, happy owner and uh, make somebody happy. So, hey, that's cool. <laughs> well, well, yeah, I, I agree. I agree. What are your impressions now that uh, of the of the ST now that you've had a chance to ride it a little bit? Or, uh, you know, we were talking about the reputation yep. it has. Um, does it, well, li- it live very, up? Very, uh, it handled very nicely. Transmission was nice and smooth. Um, I've got, you know, a little more tuning to do on the curbs and get everything, you know, really sure. right on. sure. But uh, just statically set up, they ran fine. So I'm, uh, I like it. It's a nice, it's a nice lightweight, uh, and it's nimble. It definitely uh, indicates the same qualities that the review articles about it said it had. So it's a fun bike to ride, decidedly. It's you know, it's interesting. I just finished a trip my wife and I took to Pennsylvania. Uh, we've been talking about Tom in Pennsylvania. I didn't stop to see him, but uh, I was on a uh, 77 R100 RS or uh, R100S that uh, yeah. I converted to just a standard R. So I took the S fairing off, put a bench seat on it, uh, put some uh, higher handlebars on it, and just converted it to a standard bike. And yeah. and so we did about 1,400 miles on that bike. Um, and when I got home, uh, I had to go up to the mailbox. I forgot to check the mail. I had to go up to the mailbox. And where I live, I've got a steep driveway and creek crossings. People have heard me talk about this ad nauseum. Anyway, uh, so the, I get on the GS, and my gosh, it was like getting on a completely different machine. Uh, yep. ha- having spent all that time on a twin shock uh 77 model you get on the on the uh, gs or in your case the st the center of gravity is different you sit up higher in the saddle uh the bike's lighter it feels more nimble uh it almost when i first bought the gs and i'm sure a lot of people have a st or these bikes would would agree it almost to me it almost feels sort of like a 600 cc uh thumper uh dirt bike that i've had in the past like a (laughs) An XT Yamaha or a six XR650 or something like that. Just the weight, uh, and I know there's no comparison there, but uh, I know what you're saying about the bike being light and, and nimble. Uh, it's really unique in that regard. It, it gives me a lot of confidence uh, on, on that bike, more so than uh, some of the older ones. Yeah, I've got a, you know, I go from a 73R75-5 mm-hmm. up to an 83RS in my stable. Yeah. And every one of them has a personality. Right. That's the best way to describe it. Yep. And if I've been riding one and then switch to the other, I always have to stop and say, now, remember, this is a different personality. That's right. <laughs> Treat it differently. <laughs> yeah. And your thumbs have to remember where to go for the turn signals and the horn and the this and the that. Um, yeah. Well, to, to be clear about it, both my left and right thumbs are quite busy. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly. For which one is the right? Until I get used to it. That's yeah. exactly right. Now, could you see yourself, Brooke? Uh, would I don't know. Did you? Are you sort of um, 
enthralled with this bike enough that you might be interested in, in getting an ST or a GS for yourself if it came across, or how has it stuck with you that way? Well, you're you're asking a very nice question, and uh, the answer is uh, I could very well see myself with an ST. There you go. You know, but. Uh, <laughs> I can only keep so many things around and ride, and ride so many of them. I so. know, I know. I'm, I'm in the same boat. I'm. Uh, I've got. However, there's always, as I tell my wife, dear, there's always room for one more, and I get a very, very deep scowl. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. So, have, Brooke, have you had time to think about uh, what you might want to do next? As I, as we've discussed here, you, you take a little bit more of a as it comes approach to these kind of things. But I'm just wondering, you know, how your mind works here. This is uh, just about ready to roll out the door here in the next couple months. Uh, you've got to be thinking about, you know, th it's got to be strange to have, you know, not have this in front of you as you've had it in front of you for the past uh, year plus. So what are you, are you even thinking about what's next? Well, there are some thoughts in the background. I'll try to keep that up to bay while I finish my project. But, yeah, I can give you a sort of a litany of things that float around in the back of my mind. Uh, I've never worked on a late 80s to early 90s airhead, so in terms of getting more education, that might be interesting to do. And I've always had a love affair for the K-75, the early 1985-86 model. And, you know, that's not an airhead, but uh, I might I might go do that. And then there's this really crazy idea that's been rolling around in my brain for a while. I'd like to take a Slash 2, convert it by putting in an R100 engine and drivetrain and a sidecar. Now, that would be a major project. Yes, <laughs> big time. That would keep you busy and, for a while. Yeah, and as I say, in the end, you know, the universe taps me on the shoulder at some point and says, Dude, <laughs> it does. <Here> it, <laughs> it does, doesn't it? That's funny you mention yep. that, Brooke, because uh, I just recently purchased a K seventy five. Yeah, and I mean, I don't need to go into the whole long story behind it. There isn't a really huge story, but I've always been a kind of a casual observer of those, and really, in particular, the K seventy five C with the small cafe fairing. I always liked the styling of that. Uh, it had a certain appeal. Uh, to me, visually speaking, and yeah. I've sort of just kept an eye on keeping keeping an eye on one, see if one comes up for sale. And sure enough, one did. Uh, it was down in Alabama, and uh, the guy who had it had uh, taken it to Rick Jones uh, uh -huh. at Motorrad Electric. Rick was very familiar with those bikes; had done a pretty thorough service uh, on the motorcycle, and the guy had planned on keeping it, but. He was new to BMW, and after he had taken it to Rick <clears throat> for a couple repairs, and, you know, the bike had been sitting for a while. Anyway, he went to turn, reset the odometer, and one of the little gears broke uh, on the odometer reset, uh, trip meter reset, and for him, that was the final straw. You know, he just was not, uh, I guess, he didn't have the patience to, you know, keep attending to little things on these old bikes anyway he said i i you know i just want to get something else i'm done fooling with this bike so uh, i went down to alabama and bought it uh, a couple months ago and i'm enjoying it so the one thing i've got to do is replace some of the gears inside of the speedometer 
Um, yeah. But, it, but it's it's a lot of fun. I mean, it's neat to see. Uh, I think I know how your mind would work here in that you'd be interested to see how the engineering and design was changing in the 80s and yeah. how, how that adapted into the K-Bike. And my initial thought on it is not having spent much time other than riding it is, you know, there's a lot of engineering uh, prowess in the way they designed this with fuel injection, with a sort of modern car style motor uh, and the way the bike performs in that regard. But then at the same time, I'm just seeing all the plastic parts on there uh, and, you know, how it was built to a price point and just sort of noticing how that goes. And at the same time, I can also see, you know, for instance, I had to put on a luggage rack on the back. Uh, I wanted to put a little one of those little top boxes on and uh -huh. it took the rear cow off. And, you know, it was a five, you know, six bolts, eight bolts, whatever it was. And I'm just thinking, you know, holding this molded plastic piece in my hand, which is kind of unusual for, you know, those of us who are in air, older airheads, you're not used to having that a big piece of molded plastic. But then I realized underneath that was just the loop frame uh, underneath there. Very simple. And I just I looked at that and thought, well, OK, that's why everybody is customized building these K bikes because it's a perfect platform for it. The underneath all that uh, molded plastic is a pretty simple frame and a great platform uh, to, to, to customize if you're into that sort of thing. So, you know, I, I just observationally, I can see the appeal of that bike on a number of different levels. For guys like you and me who are Airhead fans and want to learn a little bit more about how BMW changed over the years and the, their engineering approach, uh, and then from another perspective of, you know, maybe some younger guys or custom builders who are into that bike uh, because of the simplicity of just taking body parts off and, and adding things on there. And uh, as folks are listening to this, I will say we'll be doing a non airhead podcast in the future on the k75 so if you get one brooke let me know and uh we'll include that in the non-airhead content <laughs> okay well i can see you're branching out my friend <laughs> indeed indeed so uh to... well, i tell people i tell people that the heads are in the air so it's still an airhead <laughs> technically speaking yeah right isn't that the case that is the case so yeah, and just to wrap that up, I'm having fun with the bike. Uh, I like the way it handles. You know, you always people always say, well, it's you know the performance is lacking and it's uninspiring. It's just sort of a meddling middle of the road machine. I don't find that to be the case. But again, I'm I'm more of a tootler than I am uh, uh, pushing the bike and riding it hard. So take yeah. take that for what it's worth. Um, well, that's about the category I'm in these days. Yeah, right. <laughs> That's exactly right. Okay, so to recap, uh, the R80ST in uh, metallic gray that you've restored uh, probably is going to be on Bring a Trailer by the time uh, folks hear this and in late uh, July, early August. So keep an eye out for that on Bring a Trailer. Uh, we want to invite folks to bid, bid often. This is going for a great uh, charity, the Motorcycle Relief Project. And... A lot of the stuff we've talked about today, want to direct folks to your YouTube channel. And also remind me again, Brooke, uh, your blog site or, or website, that address so folks can find you there. 
Yeah, it's uh, Brooke, B-R-O-O-K dot Reams, R-E-A-M-S dot me, M-E. <laughs> that way I can remember my uh, address. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and these days, if you just get the spelling of your name right or reasonably close, it'll come up on a Google search. Yeah. <laughs> which is nice. So, well, look, Brooke, uh, as I said before, uh, we, when we spoke uh, for our first interview, I really appreciate your attention to detail, uh, everything you do with documenting your builds, uh, putting it up on YouTube, having all that information accessible to folks like me and others who are fans of these bikes and want to go back and do a repair or something like that. Having you haven't gone through that and done all this detailed work uh, and cataloging things is really helpful. And just keep up the good work. Well, thank you, sir. I appreciate the uh, compliment you've just sent me. <laughs> indeed, indeed. We'll look forward to catching up with you again, Brooke. Okay, take care. All right, thanks to Brooke for all he's done on this wonderful R80 ST project. As you heard, he's got his sights set on a few other bikes, so we'll look forward to seeing what he tackles next. Until next time, so long, everybody. The Airheads 247 podcast is distributed and produced by From Off Productions. Our producer engineer is Jeff Glover. I'm Darren Dorton. Look forward to catching up with you next time.